1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This week's episode is brought to you by Be Frugal. If you're an online shopper, you have to try Be Frugal. Be Frugal lets you earn cash back from over 5,000 stores, including Amazon, Walmart, Target, Macy's, and more. Simply find the online store you want to shop, click the link on BeFrugal.com to activate cash back, and complete your purchase. You can earn up to 40% cash back on each of your purchases. BeFrugal's team of U.S.-based specialists is there to help. You're already shopping online, why not get paid for it? Visit BeFrugal.com smart and get a $10 bonus when you join for free.
2: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope all is going well in your world. Excited to bring this one to you today. And I just want to make one thing clear here. If I were to ask you, is climate change real and is it happening right now? If your answer is no, go ahead and turn this off. And in fact, just unsubscribe entirely or perhaps you're the one in a million that's open-minded enough to tune in and listen. But regardless, I want to be clear that this episode isn't really about current climate change. Yes, we do discuss that, but I actually find this topic just as fascinating, although perhaps not as apocalyptic. This week, we're really talking about a history of the Earth. So for example, did you know that the Earth has essentially died five times. You may be aware of one, call it the asteroids, right? They hit the Earth, big cloud of smoke, all these dinosaurs die. Well, yes, there's something to that one. But the Earth has also been broiled, frozen, and even poison-gassed. And our guest this week shows us how the fossil record can help us piece together the five times Mass extinctions have happened on this earth, what caused them, the creatures that were alive during those times, and finally, where we may be going in the future. So again, I want to be clear, this is really a tour of the history of the world. Imagine dragonflies the size of seagulls and fish with mouths the size of a dumpster. These are the types of animals that actually lived on this planet and nobody talks about. Just the kind of subjects that we like to cover here, the things that are a little outrageous, absolutely intriguing, and sometimes uncovered. This week on the show, we are talking to Peter Brannan. Peter is an award-winning science journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Wired, The Washington Post, etc. In 2015, he was a journalist-in-residence at the Duke University National Evolutionary Synthesis Center and a 2011 Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution Ocean Science Journalism Fellow. His newest book is called The Ends of the World, Volcanic Apocalypses, Lethal Oceans, and Our Quest to Understand Earth's Past Mass Extinctions. In this episode, Peter takes us on a road trip, if you will, a tour of the ways that our planet has clawed itself back from the grave and casts our future in a completely new light. So kick back and enjoy, or curl up in a ball in fear. Either way, we hope you learned something. You can find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com. If you enjoy this kind of brain food, please, please spread the word. Tell a friend. We need to educate the masses. We need to. Again, we're at smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode with Peter Brandon as we talk about how the earth has died time and time again and come back from the grave. Enjoy. Well, Peter, first I just want to say thanks so much for being on the show
1: yeah, thanks so much for having me.
2: So, I can't wait to talk to you about how many times our world has died and where it is potentially going in the in the future. But before we get into that, you know you have an interesting kind of road to getting to this point and writing this book. I'd love to share with our listeners a little bit more about your background.
1: Yeah. so, I mean, I think like any six year old kid, I was kind of fascinated with dinosaurs. Um, my mom was a children's librarian, so, I would always go for, you know, the pop-up books with the dinosaurs in them. And then as I got older, I, you know, I got obsessed with Jurassic Park, the book and the movie. And, you know, it's kind of funny when you go to paleontologist's office today, even, a lot of them will have, you know, a picture of Dr. Grant up on their desk, um, I've noticed. Um, but then as a, when, I, when I grew up, I, I became a science reporter. And, um, you know, I was writing a lot about the oceans and, you know, humans' influence in the oceans. Uh, when you write about the oceans, you realize that, you know, sort of a lot's going wrong there. And the way we've um, treated the oceans for centuries has kind of been pretty negligent. And so I sort of had this background of writing about science and the oceans and things like this. But in the back of my uh, mind, I was still keeping in touch with the mass extinction literature. And I thought there was this really interesting story that hadn't really been reported, that most people think mass extinctions, they think asteroids. Um, And there's a good reason for that. We can get into that. But I thought there was this cool story about how um, in the last 30 years or so, geologists have found that at some of the most extreme mass extinctions, there are actually these um, gigantic volcanic events that inject tons of CO2 into the air. And so you get this runaway global warming, ocean acidification, and the oceans kind of lose their oxygen. And, you know, that's obviously sounds concerning for what we're doing today. We're starting to see the first glimmers of that. And I really wanted to bring attention to the, the fact that, you know, not only is climate change and all the all these things that we're doing right now are they sort of modeled on computers for the future um but they've actually they're experiments that have been run in the past and we can kind of just go back and look at the fossil record and see what happens when you you know you really start to mess with the ocean and the climate's chemistry and you know in in the most extreme events it tends to not work out so well yeah (laughs) so i guess i'll i'll Start with that.
2: Yeah. Well, and how did you get into writing about it? I mean, I know you did a lot of writing. Could have gone yeah. a lot of different ways with the interest in dinosaurs and geography and geology and all the things you had. Uh, mm-hmm. What made you choose this path and where did that start?
1: Um, well, the sort of uh, this seed was planted in my head, I would say, probably like 10 or 11 years ago when I read a book by Peter Ward, um, who's a paleontologist at University of Washington called Under a Green Sky. And that was really the first time I had heard this idea that there have been these huge gl- runaway global warming events that are associated with the worst things that have ever happened. So I knew that it, it existed. Um, and then I did a week program for uh, journalists at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts. And this was around 2011, I think. And all the scientists there were talking about this thing I'd never heard of called ocean acidification, but that they all seemed to be terrified of. And so when I started learning about that, um, I was pretty alarmed. Ocean acidification is this um, phenomena where um, excess CO2 reacts with seawater to make it more acidic, and it also makes it harder for creatures in the ocean to build their shells and skeletons. And so by the end of the century, the projections are that this is really going to start to be bad for life. Um, It could wipe out some kinds of plankton. Already shellfish growers on the West Coast are having trouble growing oysters. Coral reefs are basically doomed by the end of the century if we keep emitting carbon dioxide. And at this week that I did at Woods Hole, I kind of learned that, oh, this has also happened in the past. And so I kind of had my eye out for these stories that were about lessons we can learn from the past. And then in 2013, I saw a paper came out by some MIT and Columbia uh, geologists where They basically dated these huge old rocks made of ancient magma, um, the most famous of which are the Palisades across from New York City. And um, they date exactly to one of the mass extinctions. And this paper basically said this mass extinction was an ocean acidification, global warming event, um, and it wiped out three quarters of life on Earth. And so I wrote a story on that, but I don't think it was really covered that much otherwise. And I just thought... You know, this is, these are amazing stories filled with like sort of science fiction creatures on totally different planets, and I'm kind of a science fiction fan, um, but even though the plant the world is kind of so alien and we wouldn't recognize it, the world has been ended basically by some of the same things that we're doing today, so I thought that was a story that needed to be told, and so I kind of spent the last couple of years just hanging around annoying, or I would be annoying um, paleontologists and geologists at these conferences, begging them to talk to me and tell me what they were researching. And occasionally they'd invite me out on some cool trip somewhere. But this, is, this book is the result of that um, two or three year process.
2: It's pretty fascinating. And I want to get into it because, you know, the book is called The Ends of the World. And you basically, the, the way it sounds to me, uh, kind to the reader, to the outsider, is each time the world has died— it's lost its current state, right? So essentially there's been these number of different earths almost. And that is something that as a human today and the ability to think about the planet we live on, I can't even fathom, you know, did that shock you? Was that, how did you feel about the fact that the earth is, hasn't always been how we envision it?
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's kind of been several different planets over its lifetime. And each time, I mean, these, these extinctions are incredibly rare, but when they strike, these mass extinctions, the biggest ones, the big five, um, the planets kind of reset in a way. A totally new cast of characters takes over after the, each extinction and kind of shapes the world and the ecosystem for tens of millions of years until the next big bad thing happens. And so the most recent of these mass extinctions was actually 66 million years ago. That's... Uh, this is the most famous one, too. It's the one that took out all the big dinosaurs. And so the world that came after that is the world that we've inherited. It's a world of mammals, um, where the top, you know, there's big herbivores and predators that are mammals. But, you know, 67 million years ago, that's not what the planet looked, at all, looked like at all. It was dominated by, you know, gigantic reptiles and mammals kind of waited in the wings. So... You know if one of these things happens again um in the long term the earth is going to be just fine but it might just be populated by a totally different cast of characters um so yeah i mean it's it's kind of a mind-blowing thing to really think about um another theme of the research just when you start thinking about geological time it's it's like one of those things like space where you know you can't imagine distances in space you also can't imagine how just how old the earth is or how long um how far back time goes and our small um, space in it. So it's kind of a humbling field to get into as well.
2: Yeah, I know. I heard the term often in kind of researching for this interview, deep time. And I never really heard of that phrase. What does deep time mean exactly?
1: So deep time is really just thinking about the planet on a geological scale. So at the beginning of the book, um, scientists have all these sort of tricks for helping them think about just deep time and how old the planet is and the best one i've heard i use in the i use in the book there's a few of them the one is like the the earth was a calendar year you know i don't think civilization is until like the last couple minutes before midnight or something but on december 31st um but the one i use is um so if you imagine each footstep you take is a hundred years um so if you start walking and you're walking back in time you take one step and you know both world wars are behind you and the Ottoman Empire exists and there's no electricity and you know so it's a very different world and then if you walk 20 steps you know you're back at in uh, BC and if you walk you know 60 more steps past that all of civilizations behind you and you know bully mammoths start showing up so you think it, it probably isn't that much longer of a walk to get to like you know dinosaurs and trilobites and all these things you see in natural history museums but in fact to cover the rest of Earth's history, you would have to walk 20 miles a day for four years to get back to the beginning. <laughs> so our, we tend to only, when you grow up going to, you know, history class in high school, we only think of a few centuries back, but thinking about deep time is really thinking about our place in this much grander sweep of time that goes back billions of years. Um, and you know in in some ways we're we're kind of insignificant because we're just this blip in this huge story of life on Earth. But in the next few decades to centuries, we really could leave our 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 mark on the geological record depending on you know how much how much damage we do, I guess,
2: yeah, I think about that often in the fact that we worry about global warming and basically the extinction of mankind and The truth is, as you mentioned, the Earth will be just fine. I mean, it will just cover itself up in however way it does, and then eventually there will be a rebirth and there will be other things out there. And we will be just that very, very small species that for a short time existed and potentially led to our own demise, which I want to get into. But I'm hoping you could kind of give us a, you know, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but a walk through this journey so that people can get a sense of what does it mean? Because I wasn't even familiar with the five mass extinctions. I knew of the one. So for those going, yeah, Chris, I don't know either. Tell us what it means and what they were.
1: No. So I didn't, I mean, I was learning a lot of this stuff while I was researching it as well. These are not, these events aren't really taught to you unless you're a PhD paleontology student. Uh, Part of the reason for that is because they've kind of been pretty mysterious for a long time, but Paleontologists have really been starting to piece put the pieces together in recent years of what just ha- what went wrong. Um, so I guess I can just start start with the first one and then kind of go. So the first mass extinction is four hundred forty-five million years ago. This is called the End Ordovician mass extinction, and the world really is a different planet. You know, the top half of the planet is basically a vast ocean. Um, South Africa is over the South Pole. New England, where I am, was part of an island chain somewhat like Japan and it hadn't crashed into North America yet. So it's hard to even imagine what the planet looked like. There are some cool illustrations online that will show you, but even then it's hard to tell. Um, there's no life on land whatsoever 445 million years ago. Um, there's, so there's just barren continents. There's a couple weeds sort of showing up around freshwater margins, but for the most part, all the action is in the ocean. And in the ocean, it's, um, It's known as the sea without fish, um, which is kind of a misnomer because there are little fish, but they're kind of unimportant. The main animals in the ocean, it's kind of this world of creepy crawlies where, you know, there's lots of things that look like kind of like horseshoe crabs. And there are these squid-like things that are housed in these giant cone shells and giant sea scorpions. So it's kind of this really bizarre, like, bug world. And at the very end of the Ordovician, there's this massive ice age that seems to drop sea level by hundreds of feet which would be bad for ocean life that mostly lived on these shallow seas that flooded the continents so they would have all been drained away and it changed the circulation of the ocean so it destroyed all this habitat that things lived in and people have been trying to figure out why there was this ice age and one of the best one of the leading explanations i heard from a, a geologist at harvard was that the creation of the appalachian mountains in the tropics actually would have accelerated the drawdown of carbon dioxide for for reasons that are I get into in the book, but are sort of hard to explain. So today we're worried about CO2 go, going up too fast, too quickly, and making it very warm. But the flip side of that is, if it plummets, it will get very cold, and that's mm. what's thought happened at the end of the at the end of the Ordovician. It caused this ice age that killed everything. Um, the next mass extinction is 375 million years ago, so almost you know 70 million years after the first one, or something like that. We're now in the age of fishes, it's called, when fish kind of radiated after the Ordovician and you now have these gigantic coral reefs that would have been 10 times the extent of modern coral reefs and all these bizarre fishes that a lot of them are like kind of heavily armored and are pretty frightening looking. Um, The scariest one is this thing called Dunkleosteus, which is, you know, 30 feet long or something and um, has the most powerful bite in the history of any fish known on the planet so you have this odd sea world that gets destroyed. This one's also very is kind of mysterious. A lot, a lot of stuff seems to be going wrong. Pangea, the supercontinent's coming together, so you have a lot of invasive species going on. Trees are just starting to colonize the continents, and a lot of people think that would have really disrupted um, a lot of big global chemical cycles. That it would have f- flooded the seas with like basically miracle grow, which would have caused these big Algae blooms, which would have been really bad for sea life. Um, so it's a really strange one. There also is this big volcanic event that um, you see volcanoes of this type happen at all the ne- all the rest of the mass extinctions. So it probably has something to do with this one as well. But the Devonian is really a strange one. The, the next one is the um, Permian mass extinction, 252 million years ago. It's the worst mass extinction ever. It's also known as the Great Dying. Um, by this time, you know, it's 100 million years later on land you have this bizarre sort of alternate universe of proto-mammalian reptiles so these are things actually on our line of the family on our side of the family tree Um, they would eventually one of this creatures would go on to become mammals but back then it's kind of this lineage with a lot of dead ends Um, there are these big rhino-like things with tusks and these sort of tiger-like things as well that almost seem to get totally wiped out at this mass extinction in the oceans. Basically all the planet's coral reefs die and are replaced by piles of bacteria. Uh, You can't find any trees in the fossil record for 10 million years almost. And this seems to be caused by this gigantic volcanic event in Siberia where enough lava erupted that it would cover the lower 48 States um, a kilometer deep. So this is a totally off the charts volcanic event um, of the sort that, you know, happens once in a, you know, a few hundred million years. But the concerning thing and the thing that makes it um, interesting for today is that it's actually not the lava that geologists think caused the mass extinction. It's all the volcanic gases that would have come out. And the most important one, most geologists would tell you, is carbon dioxide. These volcanoes would have generated an incredible amount of carbon dioxide. They burned through one of the world's biggest coal basins. So on the way up, they would have burned through all this coal, oil, and natural gas, and we know that it gets incredibly hot at this mass extinction, which wipes out 90% of life on Earth. Um, so it gets hot. One person described it to me as the, the oceans would have become the temperature of hot soup over a lot of the planet, so over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Warm waters hold less oxygen, so there's the water l- runs out of oxygen. So it's just the most miserable time in the entire history of the planet. Earth even bounces back from this. Uh, 25 million years later, dinosaurs evolve, mammals evolve, uh, crocodile... Uh, Crocodiles evolve and the world kind of like bounces back again even from the worst mass extinction ever And so this is the beginning of the really the age of reptiles that we learn about as kids um, where there are dinosaurs on the planet Um, But this is um, this is still the Triassic and dinosaurs are not on top yet They are kind of waiting in the wings just like mammals would later Um, But the world at this point is dominated by these giant crocodile relatives which sounds like dinosaurs, but it's actually a different lineage. And these, these crocodiles took all sorts of shapes and forms. Some, were, some ran around on two feet and were plant eaters and some were these athletic top predators that look kind of like crocodiles today. Um, and it took another mass extinction to wipe them out and clear the way for dinosaurs. And this is the Triassic mass extinction, which is basically the same thing as the Permian, just run over again. Um, so you have this gigantic volcanic province erupts, tons of CO2 goes in the air, it gets really hot, There's the ocean acidifies and loses oxygen. Modern coral reefs have evolved right before this mass extinction and they get almost completely wiped out. Um, And then dinosaurs kind of have the world to themselves after that and are able to take over and rule for 135 million years until 66 million years ago an asteroid hits. But not only does an asteroid hit, interestingly at the same time in India is another one of these volcanic events that is one of the biggest um, in the history of animal life. And for the last 30 years or so, paleontologists have been kind of arguing over what's been more important, the asteroid or the volcanoes. And um, I think most people would say the asteroid, but there's kind of been this shift in recent years um, as people have gone back out to the field to date the lava from the Indian volcanoes. And it looks like it's closer and closer to the extinction boundary. So it's kind of raising some questions whether it was sort of a one-two punch for the dinosaurs. so that was the most recent one. And then the last 66 million years, it's been uh, it's been our world. It's been the world of mammals. And there are people starting to talk about whether, you know, are we headed for another extinction event? And um, that's an interesting topic all, all on its own. So I hope I've done a good job of summarizing, you know, kind of the whole book there.
2: Yeah, no, first of all, I really appreciate that. I think you kind of just walked us on a journey and I know I got lost in it. It's a good summary of the book for sure. And for people that are like, wait, what's going on? There's so many things there from the, right. you know, ridiculous creatures to the extinctions and what happened. So I'm going to just take a few of these and we'll see where it goes. Sure. The first thing I wanted to mention is, you know, you mentioned, okay, the ice that did us in the first time or did the world in the first time, mm-hmm. uh, volcanoes, asteroids. And it sounds like though, all of those things were really a function of gas. Is Would you yeah. say that gases specifically, I guess, CO2 is the number one thing that has really revolutionized, or I don't even know if that's the right way to put it, but has has changed the world each in each one of these events?
1: Well, yeah. So to really almost kill everything on the planet, you need to mess with something that affects the entire world. So if you just put a giant crater somewhere, you know, you'll kill everything in the immediate area, but that won't affect everything on the planet. To really do in life on Earth, you need to... You need to affect something like the climate which you know everything is affected by the climate or the oceans these huge earth systems and so yeah i mean the if you mess with the chemistry of the climate or the oceans that's a that's you know complex animal life can kind of only live within a pretty narrow set of conditions of you know whether it's temperature you know what sort of gases there are around so if you screw with that stuff you know, we think of disasters as earthquakes and um, you know tornadoes, but those are very local events. Uh, to really sort of threaten the planet, you need to you need to threaten the atmosphere and the atmosphere is made of, of different gases that do different things. So yeah, I mean we're running this big kind of uh, open-ended experiment with the atmosphere right now, but there have, there have been, been even more extreme experiments. In the past and sometimes you know it, it ends up killing almost killing everything
2: right and with some really bad outcomes so is the is the primary gas you know the the thing we're talking about here carbon dioxide or is it more of a intricate system of all of the gases
1: well so we can just take the worst mass extinction ever the end permian mass extinction and kind of like break that down um so You would have had an incredible amount of carbon dioxide going up into the air which would have done a few things it would have heat up the heated up the planet um, to a pretty extreme uh, extent Um, and then when you heat up the planet a bunch of different things happen so the oceans stop circulating as well they become more stratified so they don't mix as much oxygen Um, also hotter oceans just hold less oxygen to begin with and then once the, when the oceans start losing their oxygen, you get these things called anoxic bacteria, which start making things like hydrogen sulfide, which is just basically poisonous swamp gas. So we, f- we find hydrogen sulfide evidence for it in the fossil record at these, this mass extinction, so that could have killed things. Um, I know one, one paleontologist suggested that if you heat up the oceans enough, they'd start popping out these things called hypercanes which are basically these hurricanes from hell with 500-mile-an-hour winds. So he thinks you might have had these hurricanes from hell sucking up this poisonous hydri- hydrogen sulfide from the ocean and like bringing it onto land and kill every- killing everything. So it sounds like it's a bunch of different kill mechanisms, but it all goes back to the fact that you're, you're injecting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So it does come back to carbon dioxide really in the end, huh. um, even if it might end up being sort of a mess of kill mechanisms. There's a bunch of different greenhouse gases in the climate, but they all kind of respond to, like water vapor responds to how much heat's being trapped by carbon dioxide. It's not, it's not the other way around. So carbon dioxide really is, you know, the driver of climate over long timescales. This
0: week's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. And boy, does smart people podcast love HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new, delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. For those of you that want to know exactly what's in your food, HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. HelloFresh delivers food to your doorstep in a recyclable insulated box for free. And now HelloFresh is offering light summer meals and has just introduced breakfast options. Sign up for HelloFresh so you get delicious ingredients you'll love to eat Simple recipes, you'll live to cook, get cooking. And all of this comes out to be less than $10 a meal. As I mentioned earlier, both Chris and I absolutely love HelloFresh. It is delicious, it is easy, it is amazing. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the code SPP30 when you subscribe. That's SPP30. So once again, for $30 off your first week of deliveries, head over to HelloFresh.com and enter SPP30. And now back to the episode. You know, and when I look at this, and it's so
2: funny that we're having this conversation right now. I have a two-year-old, and he just a couple of weeks ago started to become obsessed with dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. And now, me and my wife, you know, you read books and do all these things, and we're we're starting to ask ourselves things, such as how do we know dinosaurs even looked like that? So for example, we're looking at, uh, you know, an image of, I think it was a T-Rex or something. And my wife literally said to me, I feel like T-Rexes could have had feathers. And then come to find out, I'm looking at your book and that's something that probably happened, right? Because they're actually like birds or chickens or something like that. So anyways, it's a long way of getting to this. First, how do we know what happened 460 million years ago, 300 million years ago. How do we know all of these things?
1: Well, I mean, pe- people have been going out to... I want to get back to the T-Rex, I feathers. feathers. Yeah. That's really interesting. But, <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> I mean, people have been... I mean, even going back to ancient times, people had stories for what these fossils were in the ground. Um, I think that's probably where dragon legends come from, you know, in the Far East and in Europe. I mean, both these cultures come up with these things called dragons. Uh, I don't actually know if that's what happened, but I mean, it seems suggestive to me, but um, so, I mean, people have been scour always been interested in the fossils that they find all around them. And for the past couple centuries, you know, modern science has been cataloging it all and slowly putting together these lost worlds, really. Um, I mean, one of the revelations for me writing the book was kind of realizing that geology and fossils are all around us. Um, I used to think it was like something you went out to the Southwest to find fossils, but no, I mean, did you say you're in Virginia? Yep. Is that right? Yep. So in Virginia, I know, um, you can find uh, sea life, like fossils of seashells from a half billion years ago. Um, in, you know, New England, where I am, uh, you can see evidence of all these old uh, collisions of continents. Um, across from New York City, you can find, you know, old... Crocodile, basically crocodile bones from 220 million years ago. and Really? So this stuff is all around us, and people have been kind of putting it, these stories together for a long time. And with modern techniques like radioisotope dating, we can you know, get an even more finer resolution picture. So, I mean, we've, we've managed to piece together this really pretty amazing story of the history of life on Earth and how it's changed over time. As far as feathers go, I mean, sometimes we actually find I remember there's a story a few few months ago that just blew my mind that we found a dinosaur tail in amber so like think Jurassic Park style Hmm. and it was covered in feathers so I thought that was just amazing and I think your wife is right to think that maybe T-Rex looks nothing like what we tend to see in movies Um, I actually think it's really cool that dinosaurs have feathers I know. The most recent Jurassic World kind of just went with a dy- like kind of 1980s dinosaurs without feathers. And right. a lot of paleontologists were upset with that. Mm. Um, and I think they did it because they must think that, you know, maybe dinosaurs with feathers wouldn't be quite as scary. But I think they would look even crazier. So, I mean, if you look at a skeleton of a bear, a grizzly bear or something, and if you were some paleontologist who just found the bones and you just kind of made it look like with no no fur or anything, I don't think it would be half as scary as it is that it's this big giant hairy monster. So, you know, birds are colored really colorfully and crazily. Maybe T-Rex was, you know, this really flamboyant, you know, monster, um, with, you know, brightly colored, colored feathers and stuff. I mean, I think that would be really even cooler than if it was just some big scaly thing. So
2: yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. We don't, we don't really know what what these things look like. We have the bones and you, you know, artists kind of just let their imagination run wild, but, um, they're just guesses kind of.
2: That's amazing. I mean, you really just kind of solidified our thinking, which again, I had never considered. But once you start, once you're an adult, right? Because I haven't thought about dinosaurs in a while, to be honest, right? Once you're an adult and you start looking at this and you go, how do they know what color it was? And I wanted to ask you because my assumption is they don't know, right? And then what you just said about a grizzly bear. Yeah, I've seen a skull, right? And if I were to piece that together, who knows what I would put on top of it? So as far as you know, is there no really good knowledge about what covered the bones that we have been able to find or the fossils that we have been able to find?
1: I know for some, for some, I think they found some feathers where, you know, some birds are feathered, um, are colored, not because, um, you know, they have dyes in their feathers or anything. It's actually because of the weird microstructures of their feather that the way it reflects light will make it a certain color. Mm. So I know they've, I think they've found fossilized feathers where they can kind of reconstruct what sort of color it would have been. I think these are kind of just sort of dull browns and blacks that they found so far. But um, for mosasaurs, which were these giant, like 60-foot-long marine reptiles in the ocean, uh, I think they might have found, they somehow pieced together that it was... um, had this thing called countershading, which you see in a lot of, uh, ocean creatures, which is they're darker on top and lighter on the bottom. And that's to hide themselves from things below them. who are looking up at the brighter surface and things above them looking down at the darker deep ocean. Hmm. Um, so I think we have a pretty good idea that they were had this sort of countershading, but beyond that, yeah, I mean, it's a total, it's whenever you see, a, a artist rendition of a dinosaur, it's kind of completely, uh, their, you know, just flight of fancy, you know, Hmm. it's their imagination.
2: Yeah, that's really fascinating stuff. And I think it also goes to kind of what your book is about, this idea that we are now uncovering just how bizarre history is. I mean, you know, we thought, at least I thought, and I think a lot of people have. say with dinosaurs, there was this big meteor, something happened, a lot of gases, everything died, then it regrew. But, but to be able to actually put yourself in the chaos that was the world at these times, it's kind of crazy to probably think of how calm it is currently.
1: Yeah, no i wanted to I wanted to kind of paint a sort of science fiction picture of like what it would actually be like um, when the asteroid struck, um, and you know it's just totally un, it's it's unimaginable. So the the asteroid was something like six to ten miles wide, um, and it was going you know. I can't remember the exact numbers, but something like 20 to 60 times the speed of a bullet. I can't remember quite what it was. Um, But that's fast enough that, you know, in movies like Deep Impact or Armageddon, it shows this big shooting star slowly making its (laughs) way across the sky before it it hits. But the asteroid that hit the dinosaurs was going so fast that it would go from the altitude of a 747 to the ground in 0.3 seconds. So it wouldn't be like this thing smoldering across the sky. It would be, you know, a nice day, one second, and the world would just be over the next second. Oh, my um, And God. it was so big that when it hit, even at the moment that the asteroid hit, it was so gigantic that it, the top of it would have been a mile above the cruising altitude of a 747, while the bottom of it was making landfall. Um, and then it left this 20-mile deep hole in the, in the ground, and um, you basically had these big circular Himalayan mountains that existed for a little while after that, and then the ocean poured into this gigantic, you know, unimaginable hole in Mexico. Meanwhile, all this ejected material, some of it's landing on the moon, and some of it's circling the earth and coming back and burning up. And so, I mean, you can see sort of CGI versions of this on like the Discovery Channel, but it doesn't even remotely capture it. So one person told me, if you saw saw the impact you you'd be dead already because there's so much energy coming from it. Um, so if you were in Alabama while well, this thing's hitting Mexico and you see this fireball, you you basically die instantly because it's it's so hot. Um, so yeah, these are things that we can't imagine, um, but it's fun to try and it's fun to write about. So. <laughs> yeah, no,
2: I can imagine. I want you to. I I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit from you for those of us that didn't pay too much attention in classes like geology, geography, whatever the ologies are. How does it work when they are able to say, okay, there was this 30-foot fish that had all this bite power? I mean, that is through the fossil records, but how do you even piece that together? What does the process actually look like that has helped you and helped those that inform this book paint such a clear picture?
1: Well, sometimes, I mean, a lot of times it's just a matter of finding the bones. Um, so. And in some unlikely places. So those fish I was talking about, those fall out of the, those giant skulls fall out of the riverbanks in Cleveland, Ohio, of all places. Um, So if you go to natural history museums all around the world, and if they have these uh, skulls of this fish called Dunkelosteus, it'll usually be from the Cleveland area, which is kind of crazy. Wow. Um, So when it comes to just sort of uh, learning about the big animals in Earth's past, it's it's usually just a matter of these things are literally falling out of the sides of you know, canyons or riverbanks. And so that's not too hard to reconstruct.
2: I didn't realize it was literally as simple as, oh my God, look at this huge skull of a fish. And then we, they do the dating, the radioactive dating thing. And then they say it was from this period and that's pretty much it. Is that how it goes?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. and you, you can tell from, you know, the fossils that are around it. There are usually little indicator fossils that um, will tell you, okay, I'm in this time period of life on earth. Um, but not just, I mean, falling out of riverbanks, one of the best things that ever happened to paleontology in this country was the national, uh, highway project, uh, that like Dwight Eisenhower interstate system, because to make those roads, they had to blast through a lot of rock and they left behind these fantastic, um, you know, exposures of geological strata that every time they make a new road, the first people on site will be geologists to come sort of collect things out of the side of the, hmm. out of the highways. Um, so you can get fossils that way. You can also, I mean, every year, all the country's universities send a big fleet of people out to the southwest um, to try and find fossils. Uh, the reason they go out there is because it's easier because there's no vegetation and um, the rock's all exposed. Here on on our side of the country, it's just there's fossils everywhere. That's just the the problem is that it's all covered in um, trees and plants and houses and strip malls and things. So it's harder to get at. Mm. Um, But yeah, this stuff is everywhere.
2: I want to go back one more time to, because it's just, I don't know, it seems like the most fascinating area, but this, the dinosaur thing, because here's another question I've had is, okay, so birds are, and tell me if I'm, what I'm, what I'm missing here, but birds are essentially relatives of
1: dinosaurs. Is that right? I I would go further than that. I I would say birds are dinosaurs. Okay. Um, so Yeah, I mean, birds are a kind of dinosaur. That they were—they were the ones that survived. Um, So if you look at a skeleton of uh, they're they're what's known as theropod dinosaurs. So this is the same branch of dinosaurs as T. Rex. Um, So if you look at a Tyrannosaur skeleton and you look at you know the skeleton of a chicken, it's way more similar. One's much bigger than the other, but they're way more similar than T. Rex's skeleton is to say you know a Stegosaurus or a Triceratops, and that's because they're closer related. They're they are, all of those things are dinosaurs, but T-Rex and chickens are from one one side of the family, and, you know, Stegosaurus is from a, a much different side of the family. So, um, paleontologists say it, and people think they're just kind of kidding around, but no, birds are dinosaurs. Uh, their closest living relatives are crocodiles. Um, there was this crazy experiment a few years ago where they kind of messed with the, um, the genes of a... Embryotic uh, chicken and they just messed with a couple of a couple of genes for its beak and They grew this thing that basically had a crocodile snout. So this very it started to look like a dinosaur even So yeah, they're just highly modified T-rex relatives, but they're within the same uh, the big umbrella of dinosaurs
2: Okay, so we'll go with that. That sounds pretty awesome because here's what I'm I don't understand how would birds have survived something so catastrophic? Like how does something happen? Wipes out everything, right? Just demolishes the planet, everything on it, whatever. And then you just have these, you know, a good amount uh, various species. I would imagine, unless I'm wrong here, flying around, and they just missed it somehow. Like, is there any? Do we have any answers to how certain things have sur- either survived extinctions or have just evolved after them?
1: Yeah. So there's two. There's two sort of explanations you can um, you can give or you can try to find one is like, okay, so how was this animal specifically adapted so that it might've been able to survive this extinction? Um, and people have tried to do this. So for birds, I know there's this. idea I mean, I don't know how, whether it's a well-subscribed at all or not, but I know there's this idea that maybe they survived because they're from one lineage that, um, you know, kind of had cliff like burrows in the sides of cliffs. Like you see some like swallows do today. So maybe they're able to wait it out sort of like sort of sheltered a little bit like just like mammals might have been able to burrow to avoid the worst of of the damage the other uh, possibility is it was just luck it doesn't seem like there's a lot of selectivity in these extinctions so we think okay the dinosaurs died everything big died but you know plankton and tiny things died too so we say this is you know the mammals we think of the mammals sort of being the winners of this extinction but it was the worst mass extinction for mammals in their history too they just didn't hit zero like the big dinosaurs so a couple got through and they were able to mate but the difference between being a winner and a loser in an extinction is pretty narrow Um, and another feature that might be might be um, important in these extinctions are if there's just a lot of you and you're all over the planet so if you have a wide geographic distribution so if everything's going wrong on the planet, you have a better chance that maybe you're in some weird little refuge where, um, for whatever reason, conditions are, aren't are quite so bad that you get wiped out. It could be that there's some specific adaptation where things are able to go underground, underground, or it could just be that they're widely distributed and they just happen to be in a part of the planet that is sheltered for whatever reason. So those mm. are the explanations I've heard, at least.
2: Okay. I want to spend the the last couple minutes we have here talking about where we are now and where we're going I mean, your book is a pretty complete view of the worst things that have happened on this planet since we can tell. So I think that might give you a little bit of information on how bad it is now, uh, how similar it is, and what our chances are for perhaps continuing our species.
1: Yeah, so humans have done an incredible amount of damage to the environment in the past few decades, centuries, even millennia. But we we actually haven't in the last few centuries we haven't actually driven that many species extinct. We've reduced range sizes by a ton, we've reduced population by a ton, we've destroyed a ton of habitat. But I think the best the most conservative estimates for or the, I mean the the you know the typical estimate for how many species humans have driven extinct in the last few hundred years is for the best, um, you know, studied species is less than one percent, and when you match that up with these extinctions in Earth's history, you know, it's some of them are close to ninety percent or over ninety percent. So we're definitely we're definitely not in the same conversation yet as the worst mass extinctions ever. But on the other hand, there's a possibility that there could be these sort of tipping points in ecosystems where, you know, you hammer it enough, and all of a sudden the whole thing collapses. So. Uh, I think that is the most frightening prospect that, you know, we are giving life on Earth all it can take and, you know, it's doing its best to adapt. And so far it's been we have caused all sorts of damage, but life is still managing to hold on. And then, you know, we cross this point of no return where we, you know, whether it's a few decades from now, a few centuries from now, but sort of the whole house of cards comes down and, the you know, the global ecosystem collapses. And then then you are starting to talk about a mass extinction like these really horrible events so that i think is it's both good news because we're not there yet we're not at we're not yet at the point of you know some of the worst catastrophes in the planet's history but i mean I, i think it's kind of crazy to think that we are could even be in the same conversation and um that should really sort of you know give us pause that we could do it's in our power in the next few centuries to be in the same conversation as these just totally unthinkable catastrophes in Earth's history. So I think it, it, it makes it more even more urgent to, you know, things like conservation. We need to protect what we have. We need to sort of back off a little bit from our, you know, attack on the oceans and on rainforests and things like that and set aside certain areas to be protected. Um, certainly as it gets warmer, things are going to need to migrate to track their temperatures that they like. So I think we're going to have to set aside a lot of nature and just say, you know what, we can't really touch this anymore. Um, and if you give never, nature a chance to bounce back, it usually does. So, I mean, a few decades or, you know, 20 years ago, we were told not to eat any more swordfish because swordfish are going extinct. We basically put all these conservation measures in place and, you know, swordfish have kids by the thousands and swordfish are doing well again. Um, so I think if we, if we slow down, and we let nature sort of bounce back at will, but we can't just keep hammering it forever without without sort of bringing about maybe a catastrophe that hopefully we still have time to avoid. I think the moral of the the extinctions also though that's pretty frightening is that it's one thing to just destroy habitat or to to hunt animals and things like that. but once you start messing with the chemistry of the ocean and the climate, um then you can then you're really starting to get in the same ballpark as these bad 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 events and we're starting to see the first glimmers of of you know global warming and ocean acidification and ocean anoxia and in the worst events ever these are also happening but to a much more extreme level so before we start you know really hitting the gas on on this stuff we should study geology and earth history and realize that there's some lessons to teach us and that um you know we really need to think twice before we we start to mess with these big global systems.
2: You know, I'd love to get your take on this. You've studied these extinctions, which were caused by, first of all, by essentially natural occurrences, right? They were external, some type of external event, so a meteor or um, volcanic eruptions, which is, I guess, internal, but still, it's not caused by some living creature, per se. You know, does it seem at all presumptuous that humans could create the same amount of damage as a hundred mile meteor falling at the speed of 20 times a bullet, putting a, you know, 20 mile deep crater in the earth, killing everything off. Does it seem presumptuous that just by what we're doing, right? Industry, civilization, we could cause the same type of damage.
1: Well, yeah, I've heard that, that, you know, this idea that, you know, we give ourselves too much credit by saying that we can really disrupt the planet. But already, I mean, without thinking, we've turned half the planet's uh, land to farmland. Um, so that's that's land that isn't used by, you know, that's not wild land anymore. we start. We already start we've made the oceans 30% more acidic since the Industrial Revolution. So we are really affecting the planet. And, you know, just saying, oh, we're too, the planet and life on Earth is so much bigger than us and we're, we're, where you know it's arrogant to think that humans could have any effect you're you're missing the effect that we're already having and for a planet that adds you know a billion people every 10 years those effects will only multiply and if you sort of project that anything you know close to geological timescales. so if you project that a few hundred years or a few thousand years in the future yeah we could really we could really reorganize how the planet looks and you know how these big Earth's systems and cycles work, um, and we're already starting to do it. And we should learn from these past events that when you mess with these things too much, you know, sometimes sometimes it doesn't work out well.
2: Yeah, and I feel like I need to preface, or not even preface, I feel like I need to explain that question by saying, I agree with your stance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it it makes complete logical sense to me that with 7 billion little creatures running around just completely changing the composition of the planet that we could have the same impact um i just i could just see that being something that somebody says right well and also you know hey this is something that's happened naturally who are we to say that we did it um last question i have for you is what is it that we are doing in your understanding that is having the the worst effect on the planet right now
1: so so far humanity's influence on the environment has mostly been you know i think i might have said this but direct interference so it's been hunting and destroying habitat and things like that and as i said those are things that you know life can sort of bounce back from so if we just all disappeared tomorrow i think the earth would would be you know pretty happy in a few in a few decades Um, I think the worst things that we're doing now are things that won't really show up for a few decades. Um, And I mentioned it before, and it sounds really boring because it has a horrible name, but ocean acidification is a thing that, you know, you don't really hear about much in the news and people aren't very aware of it, but you talk to scientists and they're pretty terrified of it. Um, This is, as I said, what happens when excess CO2 reacts with seawater, it makes it more acidic. And by mid-century, it looks like coral reefs basically aren't going to be able to to grow anymore based on, you know, business as usual emissions. So, you know, earth can take warming. Uh, when it gets warm, animals just move up and down to stay within their, you know, preferred habitat. Uh, that might be diff- difficult because we've built roads and things and it might be harder for animals to migrate just to, to keep up with um, w- the temperature that they like. But ocean acidification really affects everything. It affects the whole oceans um, and it affects tiny little plankton and it affects uh, giant coral reefs and clams and oysters and things like that. And so I think that's the thing that I'm most concerned about. And I hope that this book and, you know, other reporting will bring more, bring that to light more. Um, a lot of people don't live near oceans, so they it's, it's hard to make that seem that important, but you know, coral reefs supply the oceans with 25% of their biodiversity, their beautiful, um, Habitats, and there have only been a handful of coral reef collapses in Earth history, and it looks like we're headed towards another one in a few decades. So that's the one that kind of keeps me up at night, and um, I hope sort of gets more attention in the future.
2: Well, Peter, I think you've done a great job bringing light to this topic, a topic that I'm passionate about, and you've done it in a way that's interesting. Obviously, just hearing on the podcast the summary of the book and what happened is intriguing. So I highly recommend the book. It's called The Ends of the World. And then get this subtitle ready. The Ends of the World, Volcanic Apocalypses, Lethal Oceans, and Our Quest to Understand Earth's Past Mass Extinctions. If that doesn't scare you into reading it, I don't know what does. Peter, I want to give you a chance. Where else are you writing? Or can people learn about you, read about you? Do you do other things, social, etc.?
1: Yeah, I am kind of going to be writing more regularly for the Atlantic. I have a story coming out there soon um, on the Permian mass extinction, and then after that I have a really crazy story coming out on um, on uh, sort of cosmological things, like how could the universe end. So, you know, I'm I'm not really that pessimistic of a guy, but I just find this stuff fascinating. Um, otherwise, they can find me at, at PeterBrandon1 on Twitter, uh, or on my website, PeterBrandon.com, if they want to read some of my other stuff.
2: That sounds awesome, and we'll link to both of those. And I appreciate you being on the show.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much for having me on. This is a lot of fun.
2: Absolutely. this
1: is a great conversation.
2: All right, Peter. Thanks a lot. Have a great day.
1: All right. You too. Take All right. care. Bye-bye.
0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Peter Brannan. Peter's book, The Ends of the World, Volcanic Apocalypses, Lethal Oceans, and Our Quest to Understand Earth's Past Mass Extinctions can be found on Amazon and at your local bookstore. It is quite a mouthful, but the book is amazing. And if you pick it up through Amazon, please don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com Amazon. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, head on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review over there. And if you're doing it on your iPhone, do it from Apple Podcasts or whatever they're calling it this week. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Don't forget to head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. We've got some great interviews coming up and we will see you all next episode.